Warning, this podcast episode contains explicit content, including swearing, discussion of sexual violence and rape, and other adult content. Welcome to Crow Club, a Shadow and Bone and Grishaverse podcast. We will be covering all of the Grishaverse, and it will be full of spoilers. No, really, there will be lots of spoilers. We'll be discussing the original Shadow and Bone trilogy, the Six of Crows duology, the King of Scars duology, season one of the Shadow and Bone Netflix show, and maybe even Demon in the Woods, The Tailor, and Language of Thorns. We'll be covering a character, topic, arc, or wild conspiracy theory in each episode. So bust out your tinfoil hats and join us. We're a group of three friends who spent years reading the Grishaverse and discussing it together. We've had so much fun re-engaging with all the discussion and theories since the latest book came out and the show came out on Netflix, so we figured we'd love you to join us, and here we are. My name is Anjali. I'm Kat. And I'm JJ. So today, it's a big one. We're going to be talking about the Darkling, a.k.a. General Kirigan, a.k.a. Alexander Mordsova, a.k.a. the Black Heretic. And we'll start with a quote from Siege and Storm, where Elena says something that she wants, and then the Darkling replies, You want, the Darkling mocked. I want to watch your tracker die slowly with my knife in his heart. I want to let the sea swallow you both. But our fates are entwined now, Elena, and there's nothing either of us can do about that. Our fun name fact of the episode is that Alexander means protector of men or defending men, as we see with all the names in the series. Bardugo is very deliberate about the names she gives her characters. So our other fun name fact is that the Tsar is named Alexander as well, although spelled with an X to distinguish it from the Darklings. K.S. The modern version. Apparently. (laughs) (laughs) So real quick, in terms of what we're covering today, we're going to be talking about season one of the Netflix show, the original trilogy, Demon in the Wood and the Tailor. And we will not be covering Dark Lena in this episode. There's so much, I think, that we all want to get into that topic. There is so much. There is so much. (laughs) Too much. That'll be a separate episode. Starting off, what we know about the Darkling is that he is really old. In the books, he looks a few years older than Alina, who is somewhere around 17. In the show, the Darkling is played by Ben Barnes, who is in his mid-30s. But we know that as a character, he is over 400 years old, since in the book, the Fold was created 400 years ago, and he created the Fold. Exactly how much older than the Fold he is is up for debate. My personal guess, based on how I feel, is that he is somewhere between 200 and 400 years older than the Fold. So I'd put him at an easy 600 to 800 years old when this trilogy takes place. We also know that the Darkling and Bagra are the only characters that we've seen that have shadow summoning powers. And that's presumably because his grandfather, Mordzova, messed with Mirzost. The Darkling is also an amplifier. He's super powerful, and this is likely because he's also naturally an amplifier himself. There's probably more going on since we do hear of other Grisha amplifiers, including like the exam testers, who never come close to rivaling his kind of power. 
His purpose seems to be protecting and creating a place for Grisha. This is something he cares a lot about. We know as a child, if you read Demon in the Woods, he was hunted and now he's created a place in Ravka where Grisha can be safe as long as they're working for the crown in one way or the other, usually as members of the military. So walk us through the differences between the Darkling in the book versus in the show, General Kerrigan. I would say both Darklings are similar, but there are very distinct differences between them. Book Darkling is incredibly in control at all times. He almost seems to have no flaws or chinks in his armor. He's very manipulative, very cold. You can read him as actually falling for Alina or at least being attracted to her and the romance that we see develop between them in the first book as being somewhat genuine. But then I think you can also interpret it as he is completely using her. And I think that is one of the things that makes his character really interesting. You don't know how much of a cold-hearted bastard he is. You don't know where he is actually vulnerable. He really protects, I guess, the perception of him. One of the places that we actually, in canon, get to see his vulnerability in the books is not within the Shadow and Bone trilogy itself, but in the short story Demon in the Woods, which is a prequel to the series, where you actually get to see his point of view, which I think is key for you know any character in this book for sort of seeing their vulnerabilities. But you learn that he's not exactly the cool, collected darkling we get to know in the trilogy. He does develop a dark backstory of killing his pursuers who happen to be other Grisha children, which is alarming, I would say. The rest of what we know about his background besides that short story is secondhand. It's told by Bagra and therefore uh, kind of suspect. We do not take (laughs) anything Bagra says at face value. So... Totally. Show Darkling is obviously a very similar character in some ways, but he's so much more human than Book Darkling. And Show Darkling really falls for Alina fast and hard. Obviously, there's some manipulation going on with the stag implant. I was going to call it a collar, but I guess it's an implant in the show. So gross. (laughs) But you can see he's torn and you can see that he's betrayed and he is actually into her it's not ambiguous like it is in the books show darkling also has a backstory that's separate and introduced only in the show which is that he has a previous grisha lover who in the way that all previous girlfriends and villains do dies to advance his characterization it's really kind of a terrible not my favorite also the other thing i would say about show darkling is He's quite clownish at times. For example, in the show, that infamous Darkling versus Kaz showdown or the fist fight with Mal in the fold, like these are clown moments. One of the things I was thinking of as you were talking that's so human for show Darkling, separately from anything with Alina, is that scene where David is waving his finger in the air and the the Darkling's (laughs) like, David, you don't have to yes, you know, please go on. And he's trying not to laugh. And it felt very, anyone might have had that reaction. It wasn't this calculated, ancient response. So one thing you might have noticed in previous podcast episodes is that we make a lot of jokes about how sus both the Darkling <laughs> and Bagra are and how much they lie. So I actually thought we, we are cool kids <laughs> using words like sus. <laughs> But I thought maybe we could start with a really quick 
brain dump of all of his lies and generally just his relationship with the truth. <laughs> I'm putting this in bunny ears here. Yeah, so let me start this with a quote from Ruin and Rising. As I was preparing this episode, I realized I have way too many quotes to pull out of my to pull out of my <laughs> brain for the Darkling. But in this is he and Elena are seeing each other through their tether. And she says, I left you buried beneath a pile of rubble. He says, and if I told you I respect your ruthlessness? She replies, I don't think I'd believe you. The barest smile touched his lips. An apt pupil. Speaking of an apt pupil, I actually had a funny quote. I know we said we wouldn't really be touching uh, Rule of Wolves, but at one part, he says, I didn't come here to speak lies. And it actually made me crack up, like laugh out loud, because I was like, you did that. That's all you do. (laughs) Anyhow. Amazing. Let's, uh, yeah. Quick brain dump. I mean, I think the really obvious ones are from the beginning of Shadow and Bone, where he lies about his age. He tells her he's 120. He pretends to die. He comes back as the next Darkling over and over. He tells Elena they're going to destroy the folk together. When Elena asks direct questions like, what's Bagra's power? He's like, oh, I think she's a tide maker. He pretends not to know Bagra's power. And then he kisses her, right? Yeah, just like (laughs) asking too many questions. Let's, Let's change the topic. Another lie that really stood out to me was that he told Alina that Genya is unique, and even Alina actually figures out this is a lie. And I think this is actually a point that caused a lot of confusion in our group chat, and mm-hmm. we wondered if it was a lie by the Darkling or just like an error in Lee Bardugo's world building where we're like, is Genya unique? But then all these other tailors are coming to the fore, and it was really confusing. And then I think we finally settled the matter by, you know, pulling up Alina's quote in Siege and Storm, where she says, the Grisha did love their traditions, and Genya couldn't have been the first tailor the Darkling had kept in his employ. And so it is revealed that Genya is not the first. She may be a very powerful one, but there could have been ones before. And I, I think that's something that actually got really confusing in the show, where you're seeing from Alina's perspective that maybe Genya is like very unique. There are no other tailors. And then in the flashback to the Darklings, the creation of the fold, he's trying to find a healer for her. And the uh, Grisha that he comes to says, oh, no, we don't have any healers. At best, we have a tailor. So that was confusing until we had sort of settled this. One big lie at the end of Ruin and Rising, which is, I think, particularly interesting because it builds on his reputation prior to that, is that he tells Alina that he's going to bring all of the Grisha children onto the fold as hostages at their final battle. And he doesn't. And she's like, they're not here. And he's like, yeah, I knew the threat would be enough. They're having lunch. That's so interesting because even though we we see earlier that she doesn't necessarily believe what he says, but she keeps forgetting to not believe what he says. All of his lies make the scene where he tells her his name so much more personal. And it feels mm-hmm. very honest in a way that nothing else necessarily has to that point. There are so many lies that he's been telling her. He's really been trying to manipulate her. And you really see him opening up and being vulnerable. And we can say that here with a little bit of certainty because we learned his name in Demon in the Woods. So we do know that Alexander (laughs) is his actual name. Bagra seems to confirm it as well. One lie that the Darkling tells in conjunction with Bagra is he doesn't reveal that Grisha in the beginning can struggle with their powers. She, I think, feels like a fraud. 
And he doesn't let her know that like even in Demon in the Woods, we see that he struggles with his powers. And it's revealed later that other Grisha, they tell her like, oh yeah, you know, I had a terrible time with my powers. I also had a block. And he manipulates her, I think, into feeling more isolated and desperate through this live omission. He primes her for maybe not confiding in other Grisha and being extra vulnerable for him to prey on. I think it also primes her to immediately jump on his idea when he suggests an amplifier. And she's like, brilliant. And yes, he's brilliant. Exactly. Absolutely. So the last thing I can think of just off the top of my head right now is the Darkling's seduction efforts. I'm not going to get very into it. I'm not going to turn this into a Darklina episode. I think there's a real argument to be made that all of his seduction efforts, or almost all of them, are just purely in order to manipulate Elena and... Thus, I would qualify those as lies. He is not interested in her romantically, sexually, in the way that he leads her to believe. So, okay. So he's a liar. I hope <laughs> you all believe us now. And a when, lying liar who lies. When we talk about Bagra, we'll also go through her lies because, believe me, her list is basically as extensive as his. But I thought it would be also maybe interesting to talk a little bit about the Darkling and Shadow Summoning more generally. Yeah. One of the things that really struck me is how incredibly powerful he is, but it is not exactly clear why someone whose power is darkness should be as powerful as he is in relation to Grisha who can change air pressure like squalors or control water or fire. I guess part of my assumption for his why he's so strong or why his power is so strong was because it comes from Merzost, potentially. Also, I guess, combined with the fact that he's like a living amplifier himself and the fact that he's 400 plus years old and has plenty of time to practice and train with a not so reliable teacher. Yeah. For me, the question here is, what can he actually do? We Mm -hmm. see a lot of, especially squalors and especially as we get into King of Scars and Rule of Wolves and Zoya does all of these many various and amazing things. And for the Darkling, we see him make skins of darkness that can wrap around people's eyes to blind them. He can make a place dark in the books. In the very beginning of Shadow and Bone, he claps his hands in darkness descends. In the show, it really has this kind of gathering, like he's pulling all of these shadows, which is very neat. I love that visual. And we know he can do the cut. Everything else we see him do, I think, is a Merzost. The Nichevoya that he creates, those shadow soldiers, are Merzost. And whatever he does to Nikolai, turning him into a monster in mm-hmm. Ruin and Rising, is also Merzost. The other things that we see him do are we see him deflect light, and Alina yes. learns that trick. He can temporarily and permanently blind people. I don't know if that's Merzost or not. I think the temporarily with the Fjordan assassins is not Merzost. With the permanently blinding that he does to Bagra, we don't know since we don't see that scene. And then in the show, whatever he does to Archon, where I guess he like sends shadows into him, and I, like we don't really see the final death. But whatever he's doing there seems to be some sort of shadow summoning, maybe not Merzost. Yeah, that's a good point. In the show, we see that with Archon. I will share my personal hypothesis, like my real headcanon about Bagra's eyes, which is that they have a long ongoing fight. She let him gouge out her eyes. 
And that darkness in her eye sockets is just like something she put there to be incredibly extra about it. So this is like, this is my personal belief. He just straight up stuck in his thumbs and gouged them out or whatever. What? And and now she's like, well, I should at least make it look dramatic. We don't have any evidence that that was something he did, is my point. (laughs) Total tinfoil hat one there. This is tinfoil hat. As you guys talk about the difference between the Darkling's powers that are Merzost and not Merzost, I mean, one thing that occurs to me is that I've always wondered, is the Darkling actually Grisha? Because upon a lot of reflection, I think the Darkling may not be Grisha at all. And I think he, all of him may be Merzost, if that makes sense. We don't see any evidence that there's a single other Grisha, besides maybe Bagra, his mother, that can do anything like he can. And in Demon in the Woods, him and Bagra hide their what they can actually do. And they don't tell anybody about it because they know they're different. And they constantly have to keep moving. They constantly have to keep lying about who they are. And my theory is that the descendants of Morozova are not Grisha. They're, they're creations of Merzost in the first place. They're consequences of what Morozova was playing around with. And that's why the Darkling's powers are so different. Maybe that's why he's so powerful. I have a pet theory that Alina is also maybe a descendant of Morozova or maybe something created by the world to balance out what Morozova did. But, you know, in that way, she's also not Grisha at all, too. And so I think maybe the distinction between what's Merzos and what's not is actually a really tricky one. I guess the the things that kind of throw me off about this are what they can actually do with their powers so Alina seems like we and we got we tried to get deep into the physics of this in our Alina episode. It does seem like she's doing some sort of small science in terms of summoning sunlight is I think what we agreed on and whatever specific properties. I'll leave that for the Alina episode. It's really unclear to me what the Darkling is actually summoning. And I think JJ brought up this question once in our chat and I was stumped. Right, because it is not a vacuum because he would just suffocate people with that. We know that he can manipulate light. He can make himself sort of invisible in the way Alina can, which is suggestive that he's pushing light away, maybe? Is he summoning anything? I don't know if I can explain this clearly yet. It's like a theory I'm working on, but Anjali, to your point of are they Grisha? I feel the whole thing about Grisha is that they are connected to the making at the heart of the world. And I sort of think that the Darkling, Bagra, Alina are all connected to the destruction at the making of the universe. What they are summoning is not something in the world. They are bringing things in from the rest of the universe. This is why Alina cannot summon underground, is she does not have access to that rest of the universe, and that it it is fundamentally a destructive force. We know sunlight is very destructive. (laughs) The sort of vastness of space, the nothingness between stars as well. Working theory. That's fascinating. No, I love that. Tinfoil hat. Part of where I net out on this theory of are they Grisha, are they not, is I, I think two things. One, it's confusing to me that they both seem to get the benefits of using their power. At least Alina does, where we know that it makes her feel physically better, which is associated with regular Grisha small science. But the other part of it is that if the Darkling and Bagra are pure Merzos, not Grisha, 
then Alina seems like she must be too, because the Darkling and Bagra can do the cut, and we don't see any other Grisha able to do that besides Alina. So it's either all three of them are, or none of them. I would buy that. Yes, yeah, I totally think it's all three of them are something, and what that thing is unclear. To both your guys' points about what is the Darkling actually doing and like what is the small science of it all? I think if it's small science, if it's small science, (laughs) darkness is the absence of light. And so it occurs to me that maybe he's absorbing light or he's absorbing whatever Alina draws from light, whatever light waves she may be doing. And I think that's really supported by the visuals of the show where he seems to absorb darkness into his veins. And it's a kind of disturbing image. But I think if we're trying to think about on a particle level, like what is the darkling doing, you could maybe see it as that. For example, when he's attacking Archon and, you know, kills him presumably with shadow summoning, what exactly, how does that work? Like, what are the pseudophysics of this? (laughs) So I think that what he did to Archon is pretty much what he did to Nikolai without keeping him alive. Mm -hmm. And I think that's Merzost. I don't think the rest of what he does is Merzost. Like, my theory is that it's not. But I think that part is. And then I'm going to keep pushing this because I am genuinely trying to work through this in my head. When he is doing the cut, how does that work? If it's an absence of light or an absorption of darkness. And I don't know if it's necessarily related to his core power. It seems to be something, right, that he can do, Bagra can do, and Alina can do. And their their powers are different, or at least Alina is different than the other two. Alina's, whenever she does the cut, it's always described as like throwing an arc of light. Hmm. in the books so that's why I'm again I like I don't know how to understand what shadow summoning really is and how the pseudo physics of it yeah it is I with my theory of the destruction at the making of the universe I've been more or less explaining away the cut as destruction and it's whatever the forces that they are controlling I think it's less clear to me what the pseudo physics of the darkling and bagger are controlling it's more or less the absence of things. I think the absorption theory fits in very nicely there, just deleting what exists in the world. And I viewed that as just an extension of just like unleashing destruction. Mm -hmm. I guess related to his power, why does he seem to be, or at least pretends to be afraid of the Volcra? I mean, I don't know if it's pretending. Like, I think he legitimately was shut out of the fold and like, Something about it had some unintended consequence where he couldn't do what he wanted to do with it. There's a reason he's not going into it. Probably it's the Volcra. And maybe he's just afraid of getting torn apart and mangled by them. In the beginning, I do think he's afraid of the Volcra. After book one, when he escapes Mm -hmm. in the way that he does at the end of the show as well, I think it's at the beginning of Siege and Storm when he tells Elena that the Volcra didn't really have a taste for his flesh and that very much made me wonder if he really could go in there again it does seem like the Volcra really hurt him but it made me wonder if maybe they would learn maybe he would learn and could walk through with an army of Nishavoya just demolishing the Volcra that need to be demolished I mean the other thing I guess I wondered about in passing was if it had to do with what happened to Alina 
in the second book where she actually starts to recognize Avolcar as something more human in their cries. But then I was like, this is the Darkling. I don't think he has that much empathy generally. And that's one of his fatal character flaws. So probably is not. Is it guilt? I, I wonder that too. And like, I think we should talk about this more later. I'm also curious, like, does he feel regret generally? Like, what are his driving motivators overall? But before we get into that, Let's talk a little bit more about his powers before I completely derail us. Gosh, there's so much to discuss with his powers, it turns out. One thing we haven't really talked about is his amplifier. And we talked about this quite a bit in our Mal episode. What can a human amplifier do and not do? We definitely see it where when he touches someone, they realize he's an amplifier in Demon in the Wood. That gives him away and almost costs him his life when the other Grisha children start hunting him. So that's something that we know that at least as a child, he was not able to control other people touching him and learning he was an amplifier. And we also see suggestions in in the text of that first book, Shadow and Bone, that this is something that the other Grisha feel potentially even without being touched. Jenya says to Alina, we all feel it the pull. Everyone is drawn, all of the Grisha are drawn towards the Darkling in a way that seems particularly unusual. So I have to ask, based on that, if we think it's because he's an amplifier, why don't people seem to feel the pull towards Bagra? <laughs> I think maybe that's why she is so nasty to everyone. And she's trying to counteract she's like, that. Stay away. And he's trying to use it. To be fair, Alina kind of keeps punishing herself and returning to Bagra <laughs> over and over throughout the books, even though Bagra keeps, you know, like pushing her oh, away. So, so true. I mean, I'm joking, but I'm also not joking in a sense that I think I'm not 100% sure that pull that Jenya references and Zoya and Alina seem to feel is actually directly related to his being an amplifier. I wonder if it's actually more just him being the most powerful kind of Grisha around and someone who seems to advocate for them that can give favors like amplifiers. I actually don't know if it's an amplifier thing or not. Maybe it's just due to his innate charisma. Or also, (laughs) I don't know if we've... We, we haven't mentioned this, but canonically in the book, he is incredibly good looking. Let us not forget just how good looking he is in the book. Those gray eyes, that ink black hair, the cheekbones. He is canonically extremely good looking, which I'm sure doesn't hurt. I would also say empirically in the show, Ben Barnes, not so bad to look at either. Actual fact, actual fact. So we're kind of getting into this. Let's talk more about how he generally leads the other Grisha. Yeah. One of the things that really struck me on the reread of these books that I had forgotten about is that the Grisha are organized in a hierarchy. So the Mm -hmm. Corporalki are the most highly esteemed Grisha by the Darkling. They're set above the others then the Etheralki, and then the Materialki, which I thought was very interesting that he clearly deliberately structured the Grisha so that there is this hierarchy and competition within those. Which is also funny since wouldn't he, if he were a real Grisha, be a summoner himself? Yes. They mention it in the books. They say, oh, the Etherealki, that's like what the Darkling is. It felt to me, (laughs) like knowing what we know about him, He has had hundreds of years to set up his Grisha army in the way that he thinks works best, that suits his ends best. 
And he definitely seems to feel that some amount of competition in, in fighting is good for the Grisha. He has a few select mm-hmm. Grisha. There's Ivan, there's Zoya. People you can see he really takes with him and trusts. The book certainly makes the argument that the way he is leading is wrong, where Elena comes mm-hmm. in and gets rid of these divisions, um, especially he's famously not merciful. And mm-hmm. Elena comes in, shows this mercy. We talked about that a lot in the Alina episode. One of the things we learned pretty on is that Alina had heard a story about the Darkling having a healer seal a traitor's mouth shut so the man starved to death. And these are the rumors going around about him. Whether or not that's true is essentially unimportant. He may have started the rumor himself. He may have done it to start the rumor, similarly to Sturmhund. He's not a forward-looking leader either. Even in the books, they mention multiple times the difference between him and Nikolai in terms of the Darkling wants to return the world to the age of the Grisha, and Nikolai and the future Alina and Zoya also want to bring the world forward with the rest of technology, not just relying on Grisha power. Yeah, in terms of forward thinkingness and maybe strategy, I have my doubts about how strategic of a leader he is. One of the major actions we see him take, right, and the the purpose, at least initially, of enslaving Alina is so he can expand the fold in order to intimidate Ravka's enemies. But how does he actually do that? He goes and expands a fold specifically to annihilate a Ravkin city. And it struck me as like vaguely sociopathic. Mm-hmm. Like, why don't you just bring the fold to the borders of like Shuhan or Fierda or create a new fold there or anything? But no, you destroy your own citizens, which is surely going to turn some other citizens against you. And that's actually what creates division in his ranks and causes people in the army to defect to the other side. So I don't know how... And Zoya. Yeah, yeah specifically Zoya, but it just... It seemed so poorly thought out. I think another thing that drove us nuts about that part in the show was like, why in the world did show Darkling have Ivan kill the delegates? Like that was, again, like just like made no sense. And I think we talked about this in the Alina one. I guess it's to keep show Alina some pure character without any deaths on her hands. But it felt, again, like clownish. Yeah, it really bothered me. It almost made him like, cartoonishly evil where he's just like well i'll just do this whole thing again yeah just kill him now we'll repeat this yeah the well oh shame i'll have to give that speech again like what okay we were just mentioning her zoya let's talk about his relationship with zoya specifically in the show it seems like they've hooked up yes i think it is pretty explicit that in the show he and zoya had a sexual relationship so canonically show darkling banged zoya Who wouldn't? I mean, (laughs) I I can't blame him. But my point is that I strongly do not believe that Book Darkling would have. So this was something that really caught me by surprise. I think this was one way in which they really humanized him. Everyone can relate to wanting to bang Zoya. (laughs) But in the book, my take on it was very much that he relied on his Grisha feeling that pull towards him. I have referred to that pull in my own head is being half in love with him at all times. And in order to 
keep that going. I do not think he could have sexual relationships with any of his Grisha. I think it would disrupt that feeling for the other ones. And I think that then he would have like sullen exes walking around being all grumpy about it. He keeps the Grisha in competition for his affections, but he keeps it, I think, ambiguous and competitive enough in a way that it would not be if he were actually sexually involved with them. But for Book Darkling, what all these things come back to for me is why would he do it? What's in it for him? And I think that he would not get very much strategically out of a sexual or romantic involvement with any of his Grisha. In King of Scars, Zoya says that she actually was half in love with him. So I think maybe that's where maybe this that is came where. from. JJ, why do you think he makes an exception for Alina and presumably he is about to hook up with her? Yes, that is a good point. I think he decides at that point that he will get something out of it. That he wants to show the other Grisha that this matters. That he needs to show her that she matters. And that he needs to be seen breaking the rules for her, kind of making these exceptions for her in a way that makes her place clear. Anjali, I'm really curious to hear what you think of this question of would he actually hook up with Zoya or not? Because I'm I'm a little worried I'm going to sound like a psychopath after what JJ just said, but I think it's actually pretty plausible that he would. I can absolutely see people using sex as a tactic to get what they want from people, and sex is not the same thing as a relationship. So I think he can actually use the relationship like the, oh, you'll be my real second in command, my queen or whatever, as the carrot to continue to keep Zoya on the line. And the only thing that I would say in addition is I don't think he would stop with Zoya. Like, I think he would do this probably with anyone that he thought this would be useful with, whether that's Jenya, Ivan, Fedyork, David, any, like, I don't think gender would matter to him if it were a tactic. I would say personally, I would agree with JJ, not for the same reasons, but I don't think that Book Darkling would necessarily have relationships with people because I don't see him really being into people so young and impetuous. Like, I buy that he's jaded and thinks he's a lot smarter than people. And like these 15, 20, 30 year olds that are in his army, I, I would see him, he thinks they're maybe trifling and it's not interesting enough for him. <laughs> I, I guess I just feel like I think he would totally do it if it was useful to manipulate someone. Like, not because he's interested in them or attracted to them, but if he thought this were a way to continue to exploit or manipulate someone, he would totally bang them. Sure, and I think that is exactly what he's doing with Alina. Speaking of the Darkling's longest ongoing relationship, what about his relationship with his mom? In the books, it, it's set up so it is a complete surprise when we learn that Bagra is his mom. They don't have the closest relationship. She seems to sort of heavily disapprove of what he's doing, but there's a power dynamic where she can't really stop him. And it's very interesting to read Demon in the Woods and sort of see when the power dynamic was reversed. I mean, maybe obviously it was because of his age, but he has a really harsh relationship with Bagra even then. And she's not really that affectionate with him. She seems to constantly be preparing him for life, but, you know, not really interested in being maternal and, and motherly to him. He almost seems like afraid of disappointing her at all times. In some ways, I actually 
thought that the reason why Bagra liked Nikolai was because he reminded her of the Darkling pre all of his war crimes in a sense. Like that fact that he's this really bright, like he figured out that she was the Darkling's mom himself. And I think she just enjoys that kind of super smart, charismatic person, which is both young Darkling and Nikolai. Oh, that's so sad. I'd never thought of that. It is sad. And it, it really makes you wonder, like, what is what happened to completely flip that power dynamic? And if there is that kind of rift or she does disapprove of what he's doing, there's the really big question of why is she there? Why has totally. he brought her to the little palace? Like, why not just get rid of her? She's a huge vulnerability for him. She's mm-hmm. the one that knows the truth about him. I think from my perspective, he really needs her because otherwise he is alone in the way that he convinces Elena he will be without her. I think Elena would allow him to be less reliant on his mother, which is something that he wants, but no one else can understand the eternity he's been dealing with. No one else is the same wax sort of maybe Grisha, maybe not that he is. Their history really seems to weigh on him. It seems to be very important to him, that relationship, in a way that is not, it's not exactly clear why, other than the reasons that are more obvious on the surface. The one thing Bagra often says, at least to Alina, is that she's basically still waiting around to see the Darkling redeem himself. And that makes me wonder that she's probably expressed this, probably in her own sarcastic, kind of cruel way to the Darkling enough times that it's almost like she's, I guess it's almost like an unconditional love from your mother that she brings him, that no matter how many mistakes, how many people he kills, she keeps waiting and believing and hoping that there's like a better man inside of him. And I think that's why he keeps her around. In my opinion, it's because he wants someone there who believes he's not an irredeemable monster. And you're right that Alina might, in his mind, might be able to provide that if Bagra were no longer there. Yeah, a quote that indicates that Bagra did talk to him about that is he's talking to Alina and he says, redemption, salvation, penance, my mother's quaint ideas. So that is a conversation they've certainly had. One thing I'm not sure about is why Bagra seems to be playing along with at least some of his employees regarding Alina. And the big one is one that we mentioned earlier, but just she doesn't tell Alina that other Grisha have trouble with their powers at any point. Both she and the Darkling don't mention this over the course of the months that Alina is struggling to summon even a spark of sunlight. And I don't know why, because Bagger does not seem to want her to have the stag amplifier. Yeah, you're right. On on one hand, I see Vagra as this very tough love teacher. And let's be honest, like the terrible teacher teaching right. with the stick instead of the carrot. And so I can see that sort of being her strategy of like, I'm not here to be sympathetic for you. Like, don't feel sorry for yourself. Just get what you need to get done. But as we talked about before, like, not letting Alina know that it's normal to have these struggles ends up making her feel really isolated, extremely vulnerable, and really desperate for an amplifier, which she 
does not want Alina to want because that makes her play right into the Darkling's ploy. And so I don't know if that's just poor writing or uh, Bagra has other end games in mind that we're just not privy to. Bagra is playing seven dimensional chess and we're just <laughs> stuck here like, what? <laughs> Yeah, speaking of seven-dimensional chess, she does jump off a cliff and thwart the Darkling's plan. My take was that he actually seems genuinely sad about her death. I agree. He was incredibly distraught. I think whether or not it was actually a death is certainly up for interpretation. But he certainly lost her. And he is bereft at the loss. He gets a little bit more reckless. A little bit more reckless and maybe a little bit more petty. I think the the burning down of Karamzin is one thing. I That was never something that I thought made a ton of sense to me, where he's like, oh, I think these were the closest things you had to a mother, Alina. But the fact that he then burned it down and waited there for like three or four days for Alina to show up through the tether. I mean, he says he's been waiting, and we do know that it happened long enough ago that she heard about it through normal, non-magical communication methods. So it definitely, he seems to have become like a little bit more, he, he has lost his cool, I think. He's lost his touchstone, if I can use Anjali's word from the Mal episode. Okay, so here's my tinfoil hat theory, and it's pretty out there. But I've sometimes wondered if he's not actually Bagra's true son, and it's her nephew, the son of her little sister, the Swan Breaker. And to me, if that were the case, I think it would explain a lot of the really strange dynamic between them as mother-son, where it often feels like this weird love-hate relationship. And like they can't really be without each other, but they also can't stand to be too close to each other. So I understand how he could be an amplifier how would he have gotten is the belief then that the swan breaker was also grisha potentially or i mean she was i guess she was revived via mirzost so even if she didn't like exhibit any grisha tendencies herself could it be passed through the bloodline maybe again total tinfoil interesting <laughs> and so we see in demon in the woods that he believes bagra to be his mother yes. and so it would be interesting if at some point later on he found out that was not actually yeah, right the case. i guess that's again i think part of the like my tinfoil hat theory of if you believe someone is your birth parent let's say and you find out only later as an adult for whatever reason, that's not the case. I think that would give you this weird sense of betrayal, but also would make it really complex and a fraught with like tension relationship. I'm just so amused that you guys have both adopted the term Swanbreaker. <laughs> just a name I made up for convenience sake. Well done. It works. Well done. So I want to talk a little bit to this, does he ever regret anything? We've talked about the idea that one of the things he may regret is punishing Bagra. And mm -hmm. I just want to bring up, I think it's quite possible that he did not do anything to Bagra. I think it's possible Bagra did all of that to herself. And part of the reason I think this is possible <laughs> is because they both lie so much. We never hear directly from either of them what has happened. And there seems to be a discomfort with it in a way where I almost feel like if this was something the Darkling had intended to do, he would just own it. 
and something happened where it was either unintentional or he didn't do it at all, but is not willing to admit that he didn't. It seems like there is this discomfort between the two of them that makes me think something more was going on there. He gives Genya these horrific scars. Anytime people mm -hmm. betray him, he's willing to kill them. He's willing to turn them into monsters. He's willing to completely disfigure. To the extent that he acknowledges that he did something, he's not explicit about what. True. And that is part of why it struck me as so strange. He uses Genya as an example, but he does not use Bagra as an example. Even when he sees Bagra with Alina, he's like, okay, go over there, wait for me, just stay out of this, and we'll go home together afterwards. Yeah. I think another question I had watching the show was, we were talking about how much more human he is in it. Do you think that actually helped make the big plot twist of book one, where it, he's actually the original heretic, more shocking? Like, to show viewers, obviously, who hadn't read the book. That's a good question. I was pretty shocked in the book. Even though I was like, oh, he's literally named the Darkling. His power is darkness. <laughs> like, I don't know. This seemed like it was like not subtle, except that it really caught me by surprise. I do think it makes it more tragic. I, I felt mm. a lot worse for him. I don't remember spending any time feeling bad for the Darkling when I was reading the trilogy mm -hmm. at any point. But watching the Netflix show, it's painful. Like he really, he wants Alina. He wants this mm -hmm. sort of, happiness that feels within his grasp and you watch it get ripped away from him. You see him smiling when he's just like walking by himself. And then all of a mm -hmm. sudden he comes back and everything's changed. I, I do think that's, it's much sadder for him for sure. I guess it's hard for us to know as non-show only watchers, but it did feel to me that if you have someone who feels more human, who feels like he's actually into Alina, not just playing some game, that it makes it more surprising when it turns out that he's actually this hundreds of years old being who's creeping on her to steal her power and enslave her. For sure. I think while we're on the topic of the show, another thing that surprised me was in the last episode, Show Darkling looks like he was using Merzos to self-heal when Inej throws what is maybe her last knife, I know we talked a lot about her knife tracking in the last episode, at his chest, it lands perfectly. He pulls it out, it's covered in blood, and he does the like darkness coming through his veins and seems to heal himself and says, it'll take more than that to kill me. So I'm like, how are they going to kill him in the show, or kill him in quotation marks in the show now? Yeah, that was intense. I do not exactly know what was going on there it makes me wonder if that's something that in the next season is going to be explained or just gonna be assumed to be a thing that just happens i wonder if it's foreshadowing for something else or if it's convenient for him to not be downed by a knife right in the flashback he's not able to do it yet because he has his Grisha healer lover healing him behind the scenes. Yeah. So it seems like it's something he's learned recently. It just felt like a potential plot 
like hole slash device to make Inej look cool that seems to mess up the ending that's been set up in the book. Yeah, certainly it doesn't seem like Merzo should be something one can use to heal oneself. Speaking of stabbing the Darkling, maybe we could discuss what actually kills him in the trilogy, right? It is Alina wraps the knife in his shadows and Mal's blood and in that way is able to kill him as much as he can possibly be killed as a semi-immortal being. And that works for whatever reason, which isn't necessarily explained all that well. I don't know if you guys have any thoughts on that. You know, Bagra mentions at one point that Ilya might still be walking around even more bitter and pissed off or whatever it is than she is. Um, Or he might have turned his power on himself to end it all. And it would be simple enough, like calls to like. And there's this implication there. The first time we see that implication, the only possible foreshadowing for this that I noticed on reread, that Agrisha, or at least the Darkling, could use their own power to kill themselves. It seems to go against what we know about Grisha power, which is that it makes them healthier, stronger. I do not understand how that would have worked, nor do I understand why Mal's blood would have been necessary. We learn in Rule of Wolves that it was. I still don't understand why. And Mal's blood at that point also seems important to bring back his powers, which is also something that's not necessarily explained. (laughs) Right. I'll be candid. I don't get it. I don't know how that is the thing that's able to kill him. Yeah, I think this is such a problem with overpowered villains where you have to kill them somehow and it's always a little anticlimactic because they were so powerful. Can they really be killed? You stick them in a tree. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, spoilers for Rule of Wolves. I guess what else do you do with this immortal being who half of your fandom is obsessed with and you don't want to kill off again? Like, all right, we'll sacrifice himself because he's always loved Ravka. Totally. All right. So to sum up this whole episode, first lightning round, what do we think of the Darkling as a character? I think the Darklings are a very interesting character. He's certainly a very charismatic character and a very entertaining character. I think he makes uh, a really engaging villain in the show. I will say, though, that I think that Lee almost made him too evil at the outset of the book for me to really like him as a character. I, I still remember the conversation when JJ told me she was a Dark Lena shipper and my jaw just dropped. And I was like, <laughs> but why? He's so evil. <laughs> like, and that was just my thought process. Like, how can you possibly like them together? Because he's just almost cartoonishly bad. He literally killed a city of Robkins just to show his power. And that's something I just don't think you can come back from. I'm not saying that you can't like the Darkling. I just think for me, he does become human in certain ways later in the books. He is certainly more human in the show, but he still does this thing that that you can't really take back. And it makes it hard for me to root for his character. And if you want to find out why JJ ships Darklina, <laughs> you'll have to listen to our future Darklina episode. Shameless plugging. (laughs) So for me, I was filled with a lot of trepidation to do this episode because there's so much going on with the Darkling as a character, even setting aside Darklina, his driving relationship with Alina. I guess I think he's a really cool and interesting character. There's so much mystery around him. He's just constantly lying. And I have so many questions about that. 
But in retrospect, I think there have been multiple times where he's been clownish. And we talked about the show ones, but even in the books, like Anjali was mentioning before, he's not a good leader necessarily that have made me a little bit, I think, see him more as a nuanced character. I think the Darkling is a very fascinating character. He really falls into the archetype of, in the book, it's very clear, like, bored, immortal being with totally different moral code than those little humans who have things happen so quickly in their lives and actually care about other people. I find that really interesting to explore. I don't necessarily think all his actions were consistent with it, which is maybe a separate issue and too bad. But I I loved reading the scenes with him in the trilogy and Demon of the Woods. Mm-hmm. Just so fun. He has a lot of good lines in the books and JJ can quote most <laughs> of them. <laughs> I don't know about most. I'm going to hope that list. Okay, so I will actually introduce the second lightning round question today for our Kiss, Mary Kill. Your three options are Nikolai, the Darkling, and Kaz. Go! Wait, you totally switched it up on us. Nikolai? <laughs> That's why I'm introducing it. Wow, okay. <laughs> I wanted to make one pretty hard for both of you. And all of, to be clear, all of these you can do as book, since I know both of you tend to prefer some of the book characters. And Nikolai isn't yet in show. All right, I'll go. I would marry Nikolai right off the bat. I want that Lansoff emerald. I want it on my <laughs> finger. I don't have to think about this. Also, Nikolai is hilarious and one of my favorite characters. But yes, I love jewelry. The Darkling and Kaz. Oh, well, I wouldn't want to kiss somebody that doesn't want to touch me. So we're just going to kill off Kaz. And I will happily make out with the Darkling because I will say both the Alina Darkling makeout scenes in the first book are super hot. He seems like a great kisser. I would enjoy myself. Absolutely. I want to be more original, but uh, I would not marry Nikolai for the jewelry, I guess. I would marry him for the banter. I'd stay for the crown. In the books, it was pretty clear that he and Alina did not have real romantic chemistry. Not that it could have gotten there, but they didn't. So I don't even have to feel bad about taking her place. Maybe Zoya will kill me later. I would absolutely make out with the Darkling. Why not? He's got experience. And uh, yeah, poor Kaz. Okay. So I think I feel the pull. And I would marry the Darkling. Oh, cat. He's not too irredeemable for me. (laughs) I would be down to hook up with Nikolai. I don't think Zoya would hold it against me either. I'm not sure how I feel about the Mirzos demon living inside him that kind of comes out in one of the Zoya scenes. Like, I don't think I'm too into that, but maybe it'd be hot. I don't know. And book cast just isn't, he doesn't really do it for me. If it were show cast, maybe a different story, but he's going to get killed. Wow. I guess the only thing we all agree on is that Kaz dies. (laughs) Thanks so much for joining us again today. And if you're enjoying the podcast, please leave us a review, a rating, like, and subscribe. (laughs)